Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Welcome to Higher Voltage. Today, I'm joined by Seth O'Dell and Corinne Myers to talk about the great resignation or the great talent migration, whatever you're calling it, people are changing jobs. Every day you see a new announcement on LinkedIn, you see a new article on Twitter about what is happening with the workforce in America. Today, we're gonna to talk about it specifically in higher ed. Uh, we know that it's impacting uh, industries across the board, um, but before we dive in, I'd like to have our guests introduce themselves briefly. We'll start with Corinne. Hi, Corinne Myers. I'm a strategist with Convince and Convert, uh, but prior to this position, I was actually at the University of Michigan. And what did you do there? I was the uh, Associate Director of Marketing in the Central Communications Office. Right on. Seth. What's up, Kevin? Uh, Seth O'Dell, I'm the founder and CEO of Canahoma, an education marketing agency primarily based in San Diego. Uh, I've been doing that for a year. And before that, I did about 15 years in higher ed in a whole uh, slew of different roles across uh, UCLA, Southern New Hampshire University. And then uh, most recently was vice chancellor at National University System before founding Canahoma. Which, by the way, today, November 3rd, Yes, yeah. your one year uh, birthday. It's, it's the home. one year birthday came home. Exactly. It's a crazy idea to start a business in a pandemic. Uh, you know, the night before a very divisive election and a whole lot of change in the world, but did that. And t- this is celebrating one year. We're still here and I'm very grateful for that. So wouldn't want to spend a birthday with anybody else besides you, Kevin. So I'm pumped to be here. I appreciate that. Happy birthday, Kenahoma. Congratulations, yeah. Seth. I'm really, really happy to have you both here. Are you ready to have a discussion? I'm super ready. I love this topic. Awesome. All right. So uh, the great resignation, great talent migration, whatever you want to call it, impacting industries from health to tech to higher ed, everything in between service, healthcare, you've heard about restaurants, but now it is hitting higher ed hard. And higher ed was once kind of like the most stable and dare I say, like a coveted position to have. And we see people leaving the profession in droves, but especially I see it marketing and communications folks. I was once UCLA as a Marcom person. Uh, Corinne, you said you were uh, a Marcom person at a large university as well. I'm curious, and this might be a kind of a silly question to start us off, but like, what are some of the factors that are motivating this kind of exodus to you personally or industry-wide? So I think for me, so this is a very interesting conversation because I think the reasons is, is it's important here. It's never just one. It was a, a culmination almost of reasons. Um, and I think it's important to understand my personal motivations for my career, because I think this is a very personal choice and decision and journey for individual employees. I know it's, you know, we're putting it together and calling it the you know, the great resignation, but I think it's very different per person. And for me, it was um, an opportunity to continue to grow and learn and become more in my career. Um, I'm very motivated by almost self-actualization in what I do. I want to be, I want to continue to learn. I want to, I want to learn new frameworks and strategies, and I want to work alongside individuals who can challenge me and push back. And um, Unfortunately for higher ed, there seems to be this this wall between continuing education and learning, especially in the marketing and communications area, where it doesn't feel like necessarily I had the opportunity to learn more. And this was only exacerbated by the pandemic. 
funding and budgets were frozen. And so I was very concerned about going forward, any budget available for any sort of teaching education. And so this opportunity for me to go into this agency and be amongst what I would consider some of the smartest people in content marketing was never gonna come up again. And it was a huge opportunity for me to go do the next thing in my career. And that opportunity had it not been given to me, I, I think I'd still be in my position in higher ed, but it was really a, an opportunity for me. And again, my motivations are to really ensure that I'm continuing to learn and be challenged and kind of that excitement that comes with within your career when you're doing those kinds of things. I just heard too, Karen, I totally agree with that. You said, I think the, a couple of points I, I just would echo. One is that it's not like one factor. And I think it's different for each person what's driving it. There are some folks that are leaving institutions and some that are leaving industry. And so like for myself, like I was leaving an institution, I was in-house as a vice chancellor, did that role for a little less than four years and just felt like it was time and had always wanted to do my own thing. And a myriad of factors kind of came together where the timing just made sense. But for me, I, I still find the industry home and I would be surprised if my career path takes me outside of the industry. Um, and so I think there's like two levels to that exodus. It's almost like a talent transition from in-house to out-of-house. And we are seeing a growth in what's called like the unbundled service industry. So like the agency service side is growing pretty rapidly within the education space. Um, so some of that is just the talent moving from in-house to out-of-house as more of those services are being done externally. But then there's also like really great talent that is actively leaving the industry and finding their career paths, taking them in totally other places. And some of that may just be financial or fit. Um, and I do think the pandemic didn't create it, but propelled a lot of those conversations around what people want. But I will say this probably an underlying topic for today, which is like, is higher ed delivering on the promise? Because I do think a lot of people buy into this promise when they come into the industry. This is more than just a job. It's missional. I can feel tied to what we're doing. And I do think at least a subset of the people that are leaving the industry specifically, I do think I'm seeing a souring or a, a loss of confidence in kind of the flag that was flown as far as the missional impact that we're collectively having. And I don't think that's everywhere by any stretch. And I think that college is still an unbelievable transformative opportunity, but I do think it's like worth acknowledging. Like today in the market, there is a crisis of faith that in our lifetime, there's never been less confidence in college. If like the general public is surveyed, like, do you think college is necessary the answer is growing no. And that crisis in confidence, I think, is not just external, it's internal as well. And so I think that there's something going on there that that's not pandemic related, that's more related to the inflationary price of college and you know the fact that value hasn't kept pace. So there's just so much and it's just like layers to an onion that you can peel back. So everyone's situation is unique. I mean, my own was as well and wanting to start my own business, but I feel like I can relate to and empathize with a lot of people that have made those transitions, whether it's just outside the institution or outside the industry entirely. Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information, but oftentimes a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback the site search product by Squiz changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit squiz.net, that's S-Q-U-I-Z.net, to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. Those are both great points. 
I, I left two jobs during the pandemic. Uh, one was at, an, at another agency in Ohio, and that was the job I left to come to California. And the other one was a large university here, UCLA. And I left those positions for very different reasons. The first job I left was uh, on the heels of the George Floyd murder and all of the uh, unrest and kind of reflection I was doing in my own life. And I decided it was time for me to like do something for myself. There's this realization when there's things like that going on in the world, like I can do other things than what I'm doing right now to make myself happier. My blackness has never had more value than it had the summer of 2020. And I wanted to capitalize on that uh, selfishly or whatever you want to call it. But that was important to me. And so we finally got out to Southern California, which was a dream of my partner and I uh, and mine for a while. And then I got to UCLA and I realized I got into uh, an institution and found that the way that I thought about work and the kinds of work that I wanted to do didn't quite fit in as well as I had hoped it would. And that kind of frustration and uh, work life out of balance kind of thing made me kind of rethink that decision. And so there are these structural or operational parts of the higher ed experience as an employee, the work-life balance, the compensation, the, the way staff might be treated by other folks in your department or institution. But there's also like some cultural parts, right? There are state policies. There are these other kinds of things that just contribute to this crisis of confidence in higher ed. And so people are leaving for lots of reasons. All that to say, everyone has their own reason to leave a job. But at the end of the day, these institutions, they're already under-resourced. Now what? Like, what do we do now? What is the implication for higher ed during this time of transition for so many people? I mean, I'll, I'll take I just totally think that to be reductionist in it, it's like the winners win and those that struggle will struggle. It really feels like this is a momentum conversation. And what I mean by that is, you know, the higher education market is a mature market. Demand for traditional campus-based education is declining year over year. Uh, it's been a couple percentage points every year, well, one and a half to two and a half percent every year. That's driven by population dynamics. But we've seen a massive double-digit decline in incoming freshmen driven by the pandemic. Uh, and so it shouldn't be lost as that this is a mature industry that's just at the nascent stages of consolidation. In the past five years, eight institutions in Vermont alone have been closed or merged. And that is a small state for, for mm-hmm. education. And so I think we're feeling that. And so there is a real sense that um, if you're at an institution that is seeing talent leave, you may want to ask yourself if you're a ship taking on water. That's a hard truth because not all institutions, some great institutions I'm seeing talent transitions as well. A lot of my former colleagues from Southern New Hampshire have been moving on. They're now the largest nonprofit in the country um, at 160 plus thousand students. But some of that's just driven by, you know, internal culture or chapter changes in, a, in an organization where it's time. Sometimes the migration is just natural and it's like evolutionary. But there are other times if you're looking around and the best people on the team in the past two or three years have moved on and the talent coming in isn't at least replicable. Maybe they're different, but at least they're at the same level. I don't see how an institution survives that on a long enough timeline. Now, higher ed's infamous for moving slow, so I'm sure we'll survive it for quite a while. But if there is this like, you know, the talent leaving is better than the talent coming in, which I think is this unspoken observation for a lot of us at not all institutions, but at many I just don't see how you overcome that on a long enough timeline. Mm-hmm. Corinne, any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, I think there is an interesting concept of thinking about individual needs as like you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs as applied to your career, right? And so for me personally, and I can only speak personally, 
I felt like my salary was good. So I checked that box, the bottom of the triangle, right, was checked. And there are a couple others, other steps, there's like five of them or something like that. And I think it's such a personal experience that I think it's almost a lack of empathy from higher ed leadership. And I think that's because the individuals in those positions today are used to the, I'm employing you, you're welcome kind of take on employees where we are flipping that. We, as in the millennials and Gen Z, you're seeing, and not to be generational strict, but those kinds of the, the younger careers and millennials are flipping that conversation to say, what can you offer me? What are you doing for me? And higher ed, like Seth said, is behind. They are, they tend to be a little slower. And so the realization that these individuals are, they're people, they have very different motivations. I had a, a team member on my team who wanted to work from home and that's what she really wanted to do. It was really important to her. And like to fulfill that pretty easy ask for her is what she needed in that moment. And so I think there's this need of conversation of actually individualizing how we approach employment in higher ed and understanding individual motivations and really teaching management and leadership these, these empathy skills and how to approach and how to understand the individual motivations of their team. I think there is something to be said about, well, if someone's salary is not where they need it to be to do what they want to do, like you can't, there's nothing else you can do for them until that is fulfilled, right? That's the idea behind this triangle. And so I think there's something to be said about the the lack of empathy that feels like sometimes um, comes from that leadership and it comes from top down. So, you know, I just want to jump in and say, there's just so much that Karina, you said that I just so find so interesting. The one I just want to pull on for a second is that like this concept of like a shift in a power dynamic, your, your commentary on, you know, this kind of employer mentality that is not everywhere, but is certainly present in many places of like, you should be grateful to have a job uh, and we're hiring you. Uh, there is a total shift now that I totally agree. I think the people that are being interviewed are interviewing just as much. And that this is, there's been a real shift now. And the reason I think in part, it has been that remote work transition, which is that if you're a top talent, um, you're no longer stuck with jobs in your city. So like for me in my career, I was very motivated to grow. And so I made a point early in my career to say that I was going to move for jobs because I wanted the best job I was qualified for. Uh, and it might not be in my backyard. So I left LA to go all the way to New Hampshire to work for a small school at the time, SNHU. Then I went to Utah to work for a company called Helix Education because that was the best opportunity I could find. And then I came to San Diego for the best opportunity. So each time I was like casting this nationwide net of like, what's the best opportunity I can find? Find, caused a lot of candidly, like it was a challenge in me personally in my life, and it was a big decision to move that much. But that's now available to everybody without moving. And so, like, if you're a top talent, you know, last year your job prospects were only local, and within the education space, the average market doesn't have that many institutions. And so, how much competition is there really? Um, but now, suddenly, every you know education institution in the country, as well as their service providers, their agencies, the outside companies. Suddenly, if they're hiring remote, they may be interested in you. And so it's just a total game changer for folks that that have the talent. And it's been interesting seeing people like uh, kind of like come to life in that opportunity of realizing like, oh, wow, like I have leverage in this situation and I can now apply that leverage to either culturally help my employer adapt, which is happening in only a few places, uh, but it isn't some, but otherwise then I can like make a decision of my own. So just the power dynamic shift is one of the more exciting aspects of what's happening right now. And I just love that 
people that are talented, that are hardworking, deserve all the opportunity in the world. And it's just great that people are reflecting on what they're receiving and what they want and have it. So like that part of this whole thing to me feels really empowering and exciting. I agree. I think I can't think of a time in my lifetime when employers were basically forced to consider the other parts of the lives of their employers or I'm sorry, their employees in that over the pandemic, it was about like, I, I have to take my kid to the doctor. And so I can't come to that meeting. And that was totally fine. You can't go back to the way things were after people have had a year and a half of being able to fit work into their lives the way that they wanted to. And I think that might be part of the driver of some of this. It's like taking that power, the power dynamic has shifted as you have explained, Corinne. Oh, so sorry. Can I just keep chasing this for one second with you? Because this is so interesting. The point you just made is so interesting that um, we had to make these sacrifices during the pandemic. Um, Yeah, I have to take my kids to school. I now, I mean, now as a new parent myself, like I have parental needs that can't be solved in a traditional fashion because there isn't a daycare. There isn't someone can help me. I'm juggling both. So like we all had like employers had to adapt. And this is, this to me is the key rub. Employers had to adapt and it worked like significant quantifiable studies have been produced that shows that actually a decentralized remote workforce, despite the craziness of a pandemic, still was more productive. And I've heard that from so many people, whether they're running call centers or have decentralized administrations. Um, And so this is, I think, where the rubber meets the road. If it hadn't worked, I think it would have been a cultural understanding that we need to come back to the office. But the reality is, and this is the big one for higher ed, it did work. And yet they're still being asked to come back to the office. And that's where the disenfranchisement starts because we've seen it work. So if we know it works and we know it's more productive, then why are you burdening me with this unnecessary decision to drag me back to an office I don't need to be in, to subject me to an environment that's more dangerous than the safety of my own home and all to scratch the itch of who? And that to me is where the disenfranchisement comes of the, oh, so this this isn't about the mission. Then why are you doing this? And I have yet to hear an institution answer that well. And so I just want to call that out. Like to me, it's like, if it hadn't worked, uh, it'd be one thing, but you know, study after study shows that the remote work has been effective and Mm -hmm. the, any institution that is deciding to arbitrarily bring people back in person because an aged gray haired administration feels more confident knowing people are sitting in a cubicle, two buildings over that they don't plan to visit. uh, I think they have a reckoning coming. And I think that's what's playing out. And let's not forget about all the other conversations that came to the surface during this time around equality and access and where you're living because of your job. And if if institutions have not learned from those conversations that bringing someone back, especially in LA who has a two hour commute from the Valley into wherever, like those are the kinds of things people are more concerned about now than the work that they're being called in to do. And if it means either leaving this job for a more convenient kind of experience in my life that makes things in my life easier, then that's what people are going to do. And that is not something that you can just call people back and say, forget all that. Because we have all learned the last two years through all of this and had these important conversations in this regard. When we talk about like the job in higher ed used to be the most stable, used to be kind of a coveted space. Institutions had great, great needs during this challenging time, obviously, especially in the marketing and communication space. How can things like morale and how do we fix some of these things that people are leaving jobs for? Obviously, there's a lot of different kinds of schools out there. There are publicly funded, there are privates, there are all everything in between. 
you can't just raise salaries at a public university just out of nowhere. That money has to come from somewhere. So what are the what are the, some of the easier low-hanging fruit ways to start to improve morale and you know, address some of the issues that people are leaving these jobs for? Um, I think, and again, I think this is a very individualized question. I think there's this interesting for managers, especially understanding individual motivations, you know, how do you want to receive feedback? How do you want to be appreciated? Will me buying you a Yeti be offensive? Or do you want to like look at opportunities for education? So like these kinds of really easy questions, right? Those are pretty easy questions to ask. What motivates you? What looks, what's a good day at work? What's a good week at work? What's a good, what does that success look like to you individually? And why can't we individualize those things? And I think, so there's, there's something to be said about, again, that empathy with managers talking to the people that are doing the work. I also want to point out that I've seen, I've seen this several times. I've, I work now with universities across the U S and, and, and several different capacities. And what's interesting to me is, especially in marketing communications, they're hiring um, these individuals who are highly skilled. So they're, they're, they're buying media, they understand Google Analytics, they understand market research, they're doing all these things, right? And they're being hired in at market rate, which is questionable for higher ed, but fine. But they are sitting next to individuals who have been there for 30 years doing not the technical work that they're doing, but are being paid way more because just because they've been there for so long. And I don't know necessarily if that's right or wrong, but the, the issue is I'm looking at the person next to me who doesn't know anything that I know and is not as highly skilled as I am, but is making twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 more than me based on just years of being in that same position. Um, and I think there's some, there's a lack of adjustment based on you know, the, the salaries based on those skill sets. Being a performance marketer in higher ed, you are like literally bringing students in to the university. Um, and so it feels like sometimes that marketing is not necessarily given it's the praise it needs and the, the affirmation that it is an important part of, of the culture in the university and, and it's achieving those business goals that are necessary. And so I think there's a lack of recognition that is impactful and real to those individuals. I uh, just want to follow up on that point, because I think that one of the things that you've just explained is something I think about kind of often in that the amount of work that institutions do to attract students and all of the arithmetic and all the messaging and all the branding to attract students, none of that work is ever dedicated to the attraction of faculty and staff. It's a different kind of conversation. And so what are what is some of the messaging or some of the tactics that we can use to make people who are trying to get to our institutions feel valued and that their expertise is valued? That is feels like it's something that's missing because as a prospective employee, I'm not going to pick up your view book and to kind of try to get a sense of what you stand for because that's I have a different kind of need or a different kind of expectation as an employee. And so I feel like that's that might be an opportunity is for schools to figure out how they can sell themselves, not just to students, but to the people that they need to work there too. I don't think they've ever had to think about that. I think there's been, I mean, when I was hiring for positions at U of M, I had a hundred applications per position. But now suddenly they're like, I, I think that's going to become a thing. Yeah. It's going to become a necessary thing because they're no longer going to have that volume. I just think it's such a great point. Uh, and I would, I would add to that, that 
you know, I was sitting here thinking of this conversation and like, how do we connect people to the mission and to the work? And I do think there's tangible things like how many folks work in administration and don't have significant engagement with students. Um, there are a few things more exciting. And so I, the folks that I see in good leadership, you know, have the departments volunteering on move-in day and, and, and commence with all those things. So there's a whole conversation there, but I will say there's a bigger conversation that for some institutions, I wonder if there is a crisis of mission and is it really about trying to determine how to attract others or is it more about trying to self-reflect and be able to communicate our true vision for what we're doing and why and allow that vision to attract people and what i mean by that is like we're an industry that is like you know demonstrably built up buildings and infrastructure over the 70s and 80s and lazy rivers in the 90s and tuition is outpaced almost every other every other cost of good from an inflationary perspective none of those things can be mission driven and nobody can really go back and say that those were really the things we had to do that because of what we're trying to serve and so i do think the institutions that i know that aren't as much in this boat are just doing really good, honest work, trying to genuinely help people through the transformative power of education. And people are naturally being bought into it. And I do think they need to communicate it better, big time. And I, I think your point kind of spot on about like really branding and recruiting that narrative. I also think that you have to have that narrative, right? So it has to be true and real. And so I will say that like, um, I mean, if you're losing a lot of talent and you're a hiring manager at a college, you know, I think the first step before figuring out like, oh, people are going to want you know, remote work or, you know, work from home Fridays, those are all things and they want better health benefits. Those are all very real. But before that, I think we have to ask like, what are we really doing and why? And like, why does the world need what we do? And if we, if we could truly answer that, I think some of this kind of naturally solves itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I love higher ed. I think um, working at U of M and being a part of the Go Blue Guarantee for funding for underrepresented student groups, um, being there for the, the research and impactful and demonstrable research happening in the state. Like all of these things, right? I got to be a part of those strategies and communications and I got to see them every day. Granted, lots of other individuals across the campus probably didn't. And there's probably you know something to be said about that. But I think there's so much good that can happen and is happening in this space. And students are amazing. It's such an interesting place to be. And I want to go back to higher ed, given the, a good opportunity to do that. But I think the issue is, again, is this, this idea, and I, I'm going to you know, say it again, is the focus on students, but not the staff. Or the, I mean, I would argue that there's some faculty recruitment that's pretty robust. I would say staff almost gets the short end of the stick of all of those groups. How are we talking to staff, ensuring that you know, even something as easy as I'm hired and I'm a young professional, what medical do I sign up for? I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what a Roth is. Like even something as simple as that to help, help me walk, walk me through this and what you think and give me like that kind of stuff. I think it's like, it's empathy. It's walking them through their personal individual journeys and, and retaining them and retention. And what does that look like um, at that level? I think those are all great points. I want to revisit one of the points that Seth just made around kind of the brand, right? So the most powerful brands attract not just your target audiences, but also like, like you know, faculty, staff, leadership as well. And I think of also about the brand of higher ed, which to me feels like it's in, in a bit of a vulnerable place. Kind of generally speaking, and you take these articles that have just come out like recently with the Florida issue with the three professors um, and academic freedom, South Carolina with this kind of 
not being as forthcoming or uh, forthright about the renaming of, of buildings, et cetera. These are all things that kind of chip away at the brand of higher ed. And it makes people have that kind of crisis and of confidence and losing trust in the industry as a whole. And I feel like that has to play a role in people either not entertaining uh, offers or uh, positions that are open at universities. Um, I think about, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones at UNC. What is happening to Black faculty who are looking at schools and, you know, and for tenure? These are things that are important and that affect the way that higher ed operates when there's not enough people to do the work that you promised to do to deliver on the mission that you've promised to deliver at the end of the day the students are the ones who carry the brunt of that and so i'm wondering how and if it's even possible i'm hopeful that it is because i too love higher ed for the brand of the industry to have a bit more shine on it like what what needs to happen man that is the million dollar question uh i totally agree on everything you said. And as someone who's been drawn to higher ed, my, my grandfather was a college president. You know, my, uh, my other grandfather was a chair of an English department. My, my mother would taught junior college night school. My grandmother created the first adult academic advising division in the 1980s. I come from a, like a legacy of higher ed and I, I believe and I'm bought into it. I'm here. Life gave me a winding path, but it found me here for a reason. That said, and I've been like hesitant to say this like publicly, but I've, I've been wanting to write a blog post, but anyways, I'll just say is that, you know, the future of college isn't college. And I really believe that. And I think that we are seeing this unbundling of what higher ed is and, and really purely more the ivory tower and the traditional institution. And it's not to say it's going to go away, but the power and influence of the traditional academic institution is going to continue to shrink as we see this increase in unique third-party providers, uh, whether it's, you know, coding boot camp, short form, micro-credential education, access to information is up. And at the same time, we are seeing at least with like FANG, like the major tech companies, none of them require a college degree anymore. And so I do think like higher ed is, is there's two things happening in higher ed. One thing about higher ed is that it is the single most transformative thing that can happen in your life is to be provided a high quality education that, that introduces you to opportunities and prepares you and propels you in life. Like I still believe in that. But there's also a subset of higher ed's legacy that has been a socioeconomic gatekeeper. And it's been designed primarily to serve folks that come from a place of privilege um, to then be of candidates for jobs that provide them further privilege. And the folks that may be qualified for that job you know, didn't get it because they didn't have the degree. And there's been unbelievable work for, you know, a hundred years to try to solve that in various ways. And you know, I'll be the first proponent of community college and the unbelievable access it provides. But there is this like fractioning that's happening there. And it comes back to that question of like, is it worth it? And I think that's the question we have to answer is like the value that we're providing. And there are institutions where it absolutely is. Um, I don't like to reduce it to debt to income ratios or, or just job placement statistics. I think some of that stuff is just a little too simple to a very complicated problem. But I think the question you're raising is the entire question. And so half of it, I'd say, is I think higher ed is not purely the traditional 4,000 colleges and universities in this country that have financial aid. And that's changing a little bit. And I'll also say that within that, there are some that are just doing an unbelievable amount of good. And so if you really want to believe in capitalism, you would argue that the institutions that are closing and getting pinched should be closing and getting pinched because they're the ones that don't provide the value for the institutions that will remain and shine. 
I'm yet to know that I feel confident that this is a system that can self-regulate and solve that for itself. And so, you know, if it's not, then I think the answer is that those of us that have the talent and the time to apply to an industry like this choose very wisely how we apply it. And my personal thought would be make sure that you're totally aligned and in love with the drive of the institution you're serving. And if you're not, know that there's, you've never been more employable. And so find one where you are, or like you and I have both made decisions, determine that your best impact may be on the outside serving a select group of institutions as an outside partner. I've never been so satisfied as I am right now. I love the partners we're working with. I'm so bought in. Like, I mean, I, I was, before we hit record, I was telling you all about one of my, one of the institutions I work with and how, what a great value they are. Like, I would say vote with your feet. And that's the best first bet is don't try to fix a broken institution. Find yourself at one that's a right fit and, and realize that you don't have to take the burden on of fixing a legacy that's been fracturing. Instead, you know, find a flag you're proud to stand with and fly. Right. Any thoughts think, on that? Yeah, I think for institutions, I find it interesting, you know, in the work that I've been doing across universities and with U of M, there's this this kind of hesitancy hesitancy to um, say, we fucked up guys. Like, oh my God, can I say that word on this? Okay. Um, <laughs> I can, yes, I can, okay. you certainly I love can. It. Yes, say it again if you want. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, we fucked up, guys. Like, we are, this was wrong. This, what we, the, the system's not right. The process aren't right. You're, we you know, we need to address this. And it feels like sometimes hired as like, oh, yeah, so that was bad. Like, okay. Like, there's like no kind of ownership of humans make mistakes in higher ed, for better or for worse, is under a microscope, um, more so than the private sector and these other agencies. So I think, just owning the fact that, you know what, when the pandemic hit and you all had to, we all had to go remote, like we don't know what we're doing. We're trying to figure it out and ask for feedback and ask for help because the people in the front lines doing the work have way better insight into how to make things better and operate um, than the, the, their managers and leadership, right? Because they're doing the work and doing the things. And so understanding even something as simple as I need a second monitor at home asking those questions, you know, and understanding, again, what can we just be more transparent? It feels like transparency is kind of lacking in all things across higher ed. No, we, we messed up. There's, you know, these sexual assault cases that happened 30 years ago, you know, coming to light. And it's like, you guys messed up huge, like admit it and don't just apologize, make changes. What are we doing to make changes and how do we incorporate the individuals affected and the processes and people who are going to be affected in the future, incorporating them into those changes. I think these are really, it's totally well said. I think that uh, these are really great points that you've just raised. I'm currently reading a book, but I'm reading this book now, The State Must Provide by Adam Harris, who is a reporter for The Atlantic. And it's basically about why we see the kinds of inequality that we see in higher ed, uh, generally speaking. It talks about the formation of HBCUs, et cetera. And I think about the smaller colleges, the colleges that are struggling, the way that we assess the quality of an education and how that all feeds into a brand and how it's perceived and its reputation, and then what that means for the way that decisions are being made. And what we know about Gen Z and what their expectations are, not to, again, not to like generalize an entire generation, but there's data that we know about the younger set and what their expectations are from brands 
around accountability, around transparency, around all these other things that are important, purpose. And then we talk about the ways that decisions are made in order to increase rankings, right? And to all, and, you know, be the richest and grow our endowment, all these other things. And it just feels like there is a disconnect between what the expectation is from incoming classes and from people just kind of evolving as humans and this whole purpose-driven economy, et cetera, and building lazy rivers and climbing walls. Can a thing like increasing faculty and staff salaries, that might not at the end of the day move your ranking up, but you'll have a lot of more like happier employees. Does that does that matter anymore, do you think? I think some of that matters, certainly. And the one thing I want to hit on about what you just said, though, that I think plays into that conversation perfectly is um, when we talk about the traditional higher education market, residential live on campus market, something happened from a baby boomer population perspective. And so, you know, myself as an early, I guess, an elder millennial, they call me now, right? I'm 37, um, you know, child of a boomer, um, like many folks, when we started all going to college, um, and this was really mid 90s to 2000s, this was, was happening even a little bit before that. What happens when a campus reaches capacity? And that's the question. When, when a campus reaches capacity, what do you do? And what we found is many institutions, rather than saying, let's increase capacity, made a decision that let's cap capacity and try to increase selectivity. And so let's try to educate people that we're already better off and already set up for success. And that's driven in no small part out of a desire for prestige, a desire for rankings, and which is all reflected by that. Worked for an institution previously, as did you, that would tout every year how many students they rejected. And it always break my heart. And that's not the metric that I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate graduates. Um, I don't want to celebrate applicants that were denied. And that's a cultural thing. And I do think that that is like a thread underlying it. And until that kind of a component is solved, I do think you can increase salaries, you can do some other components, but it's going to be hard to really help people feel really, truly tied to something unless they feel like it's a bit more of a mission. And I will say that was what drove me 10 years ago last September uh, to leave UCLA and go to Southern New Hampshire University, a school at the time that nobody had heard of. I got laughed out of UCLA when they, when I told them I was going there. Um, but what I was tied to is this idea that like we are going to serve as many people that need to be served. And, and an open access institution was an extremely exciting thing. And so that was really empowered in part by the ability for online education to just propel open access. Like there's a real reality that open access is restricted from facilities. So it's hard to be open access on ground. Community colleges do it by being commuter only and not offering residential, um, but it's a challenge and, and community colleges struggle with that all the time. Although now I think they would welcome a, a challenge of capacity rather rather than the other way around. But I just think that like there, that is a big component of what's happening. It's like, what are we trying to do here and who are we trying to serve? And somewhere along the way in our history, a, a subset of our industry decided that it would be better to educate fewer people if it made us look better, uh, as opposed to educating more people, uh, which would have a greater impact. And I, I do think that if we look back and unwind the history of higher ed, that is one of the missteps that I think we're still paying a penance for. You know, I think I agree uh, for the most part, but I do think that you can't help society in the world if you're bankrupt, if you don't have the resources and it, you can't do things unless you exist, right? And I think there is some something to be said about having to have business goals and reaching those goals and tuition and things like that. I think obviously there are extremes here where if, if you're pricing smart high school, any, anybody, you're pricing out individuals from education, that is wrong. But they still have to be able to fund research and do the things they do in order to make an impact. 
So I think it's a hard balance between how do we ensure longevity, but also do the right thing. And I think they're, I don't know that they're not trying. I I think they're trying. I think that they're not communicating it well. And some decisions are, you know, kind of blown up and put into the media to make everything seem awful, which is kind of how things are. And so I think, I I guess I don't know the answer, but I think there is this balance and this misconception perception of, of that, you know, higher ed is this, all they do is take your money and they, you know, don't do anything with it. But I think that they do good things. That's why we're here. We are all in higher ed, higher ed area because we love higher ed and we know it makes a difference. So I guess the question is, how do they balance that need to be and exist and have money and have these things to make a difference and that kind of mission driven thing that they have promised and those expectations students and employees and faculty have of that mission? I totally agree. And I think and that's a very fair point. I do think that we're seeing that play out in the sense that so many institutions are like caught in this downward cycle uh, where they don't, they're not in an economic position to be able to provide the kind of benefits and recruitment for staff and for faculty. Uh, and then in turn, they're also not being able to effectively recruit students. And then they, they're in a worse financial position. I mean, people run from places they don't feel safe from. Uh, and so like as your institution that's gone through layoffs and you know, furloughs and all sorts of things, and you're seeing students, uh, the student population shrink, it's difficult to see how that turns around. And it's a very, very challenging position to be in. So I do think it's like a, there's a real cycle to it, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, the other thing I've been thinking about is, uh, I was listening to a speech a couple of years ago, I don't know if it was AMA or CASE or one of the higher ed conferences. Um, and someone was talking about how once a thing becomes politicized in America, it can never become unpoliticized. And since then we have watched higher ed become wildly politicized and how you know, folks on, on, from more conservative backgrounds uh, have a higher distrust of higher ed and what it stands for. We have a redefining what liberal arts means because liberal feels a bit too liberal in, in some conversations. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if this has any impact or influence about the on the way or the direction of higher ed and how workers knowing who like who we are as people and the, the attachments we have to brands for all types of different reasons has on the industry. I I personally have colleagues who I worked with prior to higher ed who would never work in higher ed because of their political leaning. Um, so I know that is a, is a factor. Do I care it's a factor? I don't know. Um, that's, you know, it's, I don't know. There's, there's lots to be said there, but I think, I think that the political politicalization of higher ed is definitely a thing. I don't think it's a new thing though. I think it's just been kind of blown up again um, by these talking heads on the television. Um, and unfortunately it's impacting real good work and it's kind of impeding it as well. I had colleagues um, who were conservative at U of M and it was never really a, that big of an issue. It felt like, I think there were some tension, but I don't know that that's a unique situation to higher ed. I think that's everywhere. But like you said earlier, Gen Z and this new wave of employees are demanding brands align with their personal values. And we are seeing they're less conservative than other generations are. And so I think you're going to see this more and more as this kind of shift toward we have to align with brands. You've seen this with, with Nike. It may or may not be true or real, but you see those the, the Kaepernick campaign and, and brands doing these things because they're aligning to that shift. And I don't know that it's a bad thing. 
Um, but I do think it impacts some retention and recruitment for employees. But I don't know that it's a big or a, a large scale amount. I think that area where it's playing out in larger fashion is more in like the publics. There is an anti-intellectualism component that's happening politically. And I do think that we're seeing this dramatic underfunding of institutions that historically relied on, you know, the majority of their uh, funding coming from a state as an example. And suddenly it's much, much less. My father went to a state institution and paid nothing, essentially. It was free as a state resident. And, you know, today you want to go and you're paying $20,000. And it's just these things, there's a total disconnect. And that's in part from the administration and funding and the business model change, but also from a total reduction in funding. I don't know that we do overcome it. And that's a challenge. I'll say to hit on two points with that, you know, one, I do think the brand cachet of working for a college university has declined. So I think that's, I'll come out and say that. I mean, I think it, I know when the first time I went to work at UCLA in 2007, it was like, wow, really? I mean, and to be fair, they're one of the world's greatest education brands ever. So, I mean, I still think there's a cachet to that, Uh, but I'm not sure there's a cachet to all. And I think that wanes. The other one that I'll say that the politicization of uh, higher ed that's also, I don't know how you solve for this, is that there's been a very fair question about value uh, and increasing price and, and what's coming of it. At the same time, there's a politicalization that I think is turning college into a job factory and that your job is to go to college to get it, or your, your job is to go to college to get a job. Uh, and while career is a humongous component of college and the predominant reason many go, to only think of it as job production is shifting a whole industry's focus to you know, business degrees, technology degrees away from liberal arts. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, President Biden last week uh, took free community college out of his plans. And so it's like, you know, it just seems like there's this disconnect. There's so much data that shows a free community college model would work. Why don't we do it? There's a huge, uh, there's data that shows that, you know, universal pre-K could be one of the most transformative economic opportunities our country could ever see, but we don't do it. And that's the part that is a disenfranchisement that we can't just back up and look at like what's best for the community we're all a part of. Um, And once those lines are drawn, as you said, I haven't heard that before. I do wonder if how difficult it is to undraw them. And um, I have not heard that before the answer you share, but that I resonate with that for sure. Yeah. I think about it in terms of like, the most recent example I can think of is Ron DeSantis in Florida saying he's going to cut funding to public schools if they have a mask mandate, right? Those so these things that are disconnected entirely from the educational experience is then like lumped in and kind of held as held hostage uh, for political wishes. And I just think that that's more of what we've seen in the history of higher ed is this kind of weirdness. <laughs> I don't even know what the other word is. It's just this way of being that doesn't feel as student-centered as it could. I totally agree with that. So the the idea that, so higher ed, it, you go to college, for me anyway, it was more than just the job, right? It's an experience, the the of being around people with different views and different types of people. You know, I grew up in a small town in Michigan where the entire school was white, right? They were all conservative white farmers. And so, you know, you go and you go to college, and you're like, oh my gosh, the world is so much bigger than this little town I came from. A lot of you, you change your opinions and, and you become less, you're not, you're not caged in this, this box of like, you know, conformity with, with who you were. And I think that that scares individuals like the guy in Florida, um, because it's harder to control a population that has experienced and immersed themselves amongst different types of people and sees the value in community building and ensuring that everybody has an opportunity 
because that then, you know, it, it messes everything up, right? It, it's like, you know, the women going to college was this huge liberation for women. And it wasn't done before because women belong in the kitchen, right? And so like, there's this, this idea of the politicization of higher ed has this element or this, this, um, you know, this, this part of it is because they, they're losing control. They're losing control of the populations they're relying on for office, for laws, for their ideals that they want to keep and hold tight. And we're, we're kind of taking it away from them. The next generation is doing that even more with this shift. And so I personally, one of the reasons I've loved working in higher ed is because I have never been challenged more as an individual in what I believe and the things that I've experienced than working in higher ed and, you know, adding she, her to the end of my name and, and Zooms. Like I would never have thought to do that if it weren't for working in higher ed. And I, I thank higher ed for that. And the the, the openness and the conversations and the challenges and the pushback that you get in that industry, I think that it's not for everyone, but I think they don't talk enough about that, about that and the, the benefits you get as a human being working in this place of incredibly smart individuals, but also individuals who have experienced the world and have a better understanding of, you know, these different ways to live and, and what's you know, the, the research backed pre-k universal pre-k right it's, it's backed by research like what you know that, those kinds of things i would you don't experience that in an agency in the middle of nowhere michigan right you don't you don't get that you get that in higher ed i, did, I totally agree it almost begs the question of like is that is the answer on how to help people stay the same reason why they're leaving because everything you talked about too is i feel like that's being propelled by the pandemic that there's this real like sense of self-reflection so like one of the reasons i think we're seeing such a talent migration um, out of places is that I think people had a chance to stop and ask themselves what they're doing and why and what they want out of life. And I think that um, it was a chapter where few of us were like fully satisfied and fulfilled. And, and many of us dealt with dramatic challenges all the way from losing loved ones to health scares to job loss. I mean, and just the, as a society feeling this sense of suffering. And so um, I mean, I know that played no small part in you know, my role is several things happened, one of which was I really reflected on like, what do I want and what would my life look like if fear wasn't the primary factor and the sense of like being so afraid to lose my job while well, unemployment's going through the roof, there's a pandemic happening. And so all that said, like if there is this sense of self-reflection of like, who am I and what do I want to do and how do I want to apply my talents? Um it goes back that, well, that higher ed is not a bad answer for that. I mean, there are institutions that are making an unbelievable impact. And, you know, as I tell my team, even, you know, we don't sell vacuums. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Dirty floors got to get cleaned. But like, you know, we're helping institutions of meaning meaningfully promote their message. And um, so, so it does go back to like, is the reason people are leaving a true loss of faith, or is it a crisis of faith, in which case it just needs to be addressed and to have these conversations. And so um, having, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really fair question, because the, this is a noble field to serve in. Um, and it's, and I do wonder, I mean, I guess, okay, I'm so sorry, I'm rambling on your podcast. But like, I guess, the question, okay, the question to me right now is like, are people leaving because there's a true disconnect and they're not bought into the mission because the mission was BS and you're not really what you're saying you are and you're having the impact you're having. Is that, is there's, there's a real crisis of faith or is it 
you're not communicating your mission well. You've taken me for granted. And now people are knocking on the door and they're offering me better benefits, better flexibility. And you were really rude to me telling me to come back to the office when you didn't need me to. So you know what? Screw you. Like, and if it's that, that's solvable. That's solvable through like much better benefits packages, through listening to your teams. And so like, I actually don't know where I fall on that. Like, is this a true crisis of confidence that the industry has failed and people are waking up and feeling it? Or is it just like, you're not really reminding people at your mission that well, and you're kind of taking people for granted, um, you know, and that's a solvable situation. Well, so I think, yeah. so while the two of you have been talking, I've been thinking about like what the intersection that higher ed currently sits in, and it's a rough one, right? So we've got um, crisis of faith, confidence in the brands and the brand of the ind- industry. We've got a, a spate of terrible news headlines around racism and um untruths and whatever and whatever out varsity blues we've got price we've got accessibility we've got all the other things that existed before the pandemic even started and now we have people who have a lower bar of exit right so what used to be like i can't quit this job are you crazy i have nothing else lined up has now become I've been upset for these many days. I'm overworked. I'm under uh, appreciated, undervalued, underpaid. Um, I'm leaving. And it's, it feels like it's a lot easier now for people to leave because of the reality that we've had to live through the last two years, right? This feels like a motivating event. I feel like I can take control of my life more now uh, because I've been out of control for the last list sitting at home and doing these things and, you know, living at work essentially and having other people dictate what I'm going to do when. I'll just leave. And so what is it that can happen in higher ed that, first of all, I would say that this is a really distinct time and opportunity for higher ed to, as people are transitioning, to offer some sort of certificate or stack or whatever else to, you know, help upskill folks. That's an aside. But for the employee piece, once people have started looking, you've you've lost them. And so what are the things that can be done inside of the industry to help people feel that they're more valuable. I don't know what the answers to that are. And I think that to your question, is it the crisis of confidence or is it, I think it, yes, it's all of that. Yeah. And to jump in on, let me take a stab at both um, as best I get on the surface one about the, what can institutions do? I, I do think like the one piece of advice I would give is the worst thing you can do is nothing. Um, I can't tell you how many people are reaching out to me running an education agency that have like had conversations with me about like possibly coming on board. I've had multiple as in like more than 10 people reach out to me saying, you know, I'm looking for a remote opportunity. Let me know when you're hiring. You know, we post jobs and we're getting a hundred plus applicants of high quality, but it's not just that we're remote. And I think that's like, like for us at Ken Home, like, like we're fully remote, unlimited PTO, we're asynchronous. So if we don't have client meetings, you work whenever you want, no set hours, hundred percent of healthcare insurance premiums for employees, dependent staff, 401k that vests day one, and we pay off student loans uh, with an education benefit on behalf of our team. And like, we're not just doing that, like out of the goodness of our hearts. Although I do think like, I believe employers should play a different role in trying to do that. Like, we're doing that because like, that's where we're going. We're trying to Steve Jobs this thing, right? Skate to where the puck is going. And like, like as a new employer, like we're acknowledging the power dynamic has changed. And if like, we're going to have a top team of top talent, like we have to have the benefits package to recruit them. And so even though like today, when we talk to people, they're like, how, how do you make that work? And you know, we're a small team. We're going to finish the year at like, probably 10 people. Um, and it's like, how do you pull that off? But the truth is like, 
no, you don't understand. Everyone's going to have to pull this off in five years. Like, I don't believe anything. We're, we're just early. We're not different. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's the, it's about the future of work. And if we're yeah. not, if hire is not looking at what the future of work is going to look like, then people will work somewhere else. Like that's yep. just the way, that's just the way it works. Right. People, the expectations are different. Um, Oh, Aaron said the lights are on in the bar. Time to wrap it up. Yeah. Can I hit, I hit one very small anecdote then super, super quick? Of course. I just want to say when it comes to finding the right institutions, I think it's looking for institutions that can prove they've done something recently to try to challenge the system and improve access. So I haven't worked at Southern New Hampshire University since 2015, um, but I still love that organization. And I believe in Paul LeBlanc and the, and the institution that's what's happening there. Well, during my time there, they stopped taking fees for textbooks. They said, why are we marking up books? We want every student to buy a book. So let's not, we're going to sell books at cost. And then just last year, they stopped uh, mar- They stopped charging for transcripts. Like if you drop out because you can't afford college, you should be able to get your transcript. We shouldn't then charge you a fee that now you're locked out of even have access to the credit you earned. That's total BS. And so I, I think it's not about which ones you solve, but it's about like, there are other institutions like that. Hope College is doing this really interesting um, new payment model. Like it's just about like, what have you done lately to show that you are trying? And I think that is the line to draw and you'll find institutions on one side or the other. Totally. And you don't have to do all the things at once. As long as there's a like demonstrable movement towards the future, I think that's all you need. There are people who are, you know, taking out the CSS form because it's too hard for low income. Like these are the the decisions that need to be made that show people what your culture is and what you're about. And I think that's going to be the most important thing. That is part of your brand. And that is the welcome mat for people you're trying to attract. Seth. Corinne, any final thoughts you'd like to leave with us uh, since Aaron is flicking the lights? <laughs> I'll just say thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. I mean, you're two people that I've known for quite a while and respect a lot. And so uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I miss you both. Um, and I just, I hope that that this is a conversation that keeps happening. I believe in this industry and I think that this is a, this is simply a transitional time for us and that's both okay and scary. And so I think the dialogue was great and I really appreciate the chance to be a part of it. Yeah. I think we're here because we care and we want to see change and, you know, growth. So, um, again, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you both for joining us today on higher voltage. Hope to see you again soon, Seth and Corinne. We got to meet in person at some point, but in the meantime, uh, have a great week. Thanks again. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2. 